baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. All right, here I am, locked out of the house with Connor Habib, <laughs> the great Connor Habib. We're waiting for his roommate to get out of the shower so we have access to the house again. <laughs> but in the meantime, we're we're on the back porch, which just before sitting down, I learned is infested with black widow spiders. So if you hear a scream and this goes radio silent, that's why. I'll just carry on the rest of the podcast there's in some, your honor. There's something weirdly poetic, perhaps, about... Like getting bit by a black widow spider while doing a podcast with my favorite gay guy. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You and Dan are probably yeah. There's some connect. There's some poetic connection there. There's there for something. Sure. There's yeah. some weird sexual undercurrent. I'm not sure what it means, but <laughs> <laughs> it could be a, yeah. And like the praying mantis and the black widow both eat their mates, right? Is that yeah? Correct? Well, the praying mantis actually turns around. The female turns around and eats the male's head as he's copulating with her. Yeah. Talk about giving head. Yeah. So there's something about that. Like somehow I'm I'm killing and devouring your masculinity yeah. just by talking to you. Just by being yeah within your your just by range. being this gay. <laughs> Stop being so damn gay. Freaking me out, man. Uh, no, what the uh, the Black Widow kills? I think she stings the male or something. Okay. I don't know if she eats him. I don't know. I you know, there's one of the best nature writing books I've ever read. It's so great. It's called um, The Red Hourglass. Um, I think it's like Life of the Predators. It's by this guy Gordon Grice, and he um, <clears throat> each chapter is just about a different dangerous animal yeah <laughs> and so the first chapter is about black widows and i forget the thing about the but the, there's i learned so many interesting things about black widows uh, from that book mm. it's like bra- black widow brown recluse then there's a chapter on dogs a chapter on pigs and uh i think there's one on rattlesnakes but it's just like uh I learned so much. And one of the things that was really helpful, even though I read that book 10 years ago, was I was able to identify which of the spiders in my backyard were black widows. And one of the ways you do it is their webbing is so strong that if you pull a a stick through it, you hear it like snap and pop. Oh, really? And uh, you can just hear it crackle. And so... um, that was how when I saw the webs and stuff in my backyard, I was like, all right, I can give it the test. And I mean, I'm sure there are other spiders that have snapping, you know, that have really strong webbing like that. Yeah. too. But yeah. Wow. And, and they're little black things with a red dot on them. Is that- Yeah. The female of <clears throat> there's there are other variants, um, subspecies that don't have that. So you still have to watch out. But yeah, the, mm. the trademark is this black. And then on the bottom, there's like this blood red hourglass shape. Hourglass. Yeah. Oh, that's why it's called the Red Hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, right. Wow. Okay. Well. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <clears throat> yeah, I'm a little concerned about all this. I, I didn't know that, that L.A. was Black Widow country. It, that, that was going to be the tourism motto, but it's, uh, L.A. <laughs> yeah, it's is like Black a, Widow country. On the license plate. Right? Yeah. And it's instead of I heart New York, it's I hourglass I L.A. I hourglass L.A. <laughs> yeah. hey, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Talking about license plate mottos. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I, I probably shouldn't tell this story because it's embarrassing. <laughs> Here we go. For, for <laughs> We're already my underway. Sister. Uh, my sister married this guy uh, years ago. It was one of those sort of like uh, impulsive marriages that just was doomed from the start, right? Yeah. And I was living in Spain at the time, and she told me she'd met this guy, and he was the man of her life and all that. This is a long time ago. She's she's much much wiser at this point. But um, anyway, she... Uh, so she'd met this guy and he was great and they were going to get married and I was like what? Holy shit. So I arranged to fly over uh, one time when my parents were in Boston where they lived um, and just to you know meet the guy and and actually, I think it might have been for the wedding. I think it was like you know a few days before the wedding and uh, so he was a, he's a plumber. Very working class dude, and mm-hmm. and you know I'm sure he had heard shit about me. You know my brother, he's you know doing his PhD, blah blah blah. And so I'm thinking he's got this this right, sense right, of right. me, and I, I I want to diffuse that. So we <laughs> we meet, and we're just sort of sitting there outside the restaurant, and my parents are getting a table or something, and I he's wearing a short sleeve shirt, and I see he's got a tattoo, and I say, oh, you got a tattoo? It was, you know what's that? And I've got some friends who are tattoo artists, and I'm trying to like connect with the working class uh-huh. thing, and my sister just goes, oh. Chris, oh my God! It turns out this guy—he was really embarrassed. He had this big tattoo on his bicep, and you know the the license plate thing in New Hampshire: "Live free or die." Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So he and his buddy, the tattoo artist, were stoned one night, and he decided to get a tattoo of that. But his buddy was so stoned, it came out "Live or die free." Oh no! <laughs> Which I, which love, you think I actually it love makes that. No, sense. no, live or die free. Live or die free. <laughs> That's really funny. Isn't that great? Live or die free. Die free. Right, die free. Die free or live. <laughs> That's great. Do you know? So when I when I was in high school, I wrote about this once. I wrote this like little series of essays about like guys I want to have sex with, and it's actually called "Guys I Want to Fuck in High School." Um, but you wrote this for a class? No, 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 no. Oh. I wrote no. I wrote this series of essays. It's on my blog called "Guys I Want to Fuck in High School." But one of them is about how like there was where I grew up. There's all this like racism. I grew up in small town Pennsylvania, so we we're like KKK marches oh, and stuff like where, that. Where, where, oh, really? Where'd you grow up? How do we not discover this yeah. outside of Allentown? Oh, I was in Beaver Falls, oh, okay. near Pittsburgh. Oh, well, I went to IUP for two years. Beaver Falls. Yeah, Beaver Falls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so I lived on that side of the state for a couple of years, huh. too, but um, that's really funny. Yeah, Pennsylvania is, for people who haven't been there, you've, you, I'm sure you've heard this description. It's Philadelphia on one side, yeah, Pittsburgh yeah. on the other, Alabama in between. Alabama in, in between, yeah. yeah. It's like... Um, yeah, it's one of those places where, you know, people might know Philly. They might, I guess, know Pittsburgh. Kind of, Pittsburgh is also kind of unknown. It's not really it's like people. It's a mythical really think of, place in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Steelers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. right. The Steelers, they would know. And so, um, but that's it. Like, uh it's kind of ignored place. But so where I grew up, all racism all the time. And one of the, one of the kids in my high school, there are all these skinheads in my high school. And... If you were a punk rock kid, like I was, you were friends with the skinheads because they went to punk rock shows. It was just sort of like weirdly unavoidable. And one of the kids, it was rumored, although I'm not sure (laughs) this is true, one of the skinheads had a tattoo on his inner thigh of Hitler, and Hitler's arm was on his dick. So when he got an erection, (laughs) it went Sieg Heil. (laughs) 
And the thing is, this guy was a ta- this guy was a tattoo artist. Oh, I on. kind of am down. Like I kind of believe it. I mean, it was one of those things where you could never ask because you'd be dead. <laughs> but then also, any woman he had sex with was getting fisted by Hitler. <laughs> oh man! And hey, how many guys can say that? That's a good pickup line. Want to yeah. get fisted by little Hitler? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little Adolf. Yeah. Do gay guys have names for their penises, or is that just straight guys who do that? Um, I've met gay guys that have names for their penises, but they always seem like sort of wacky geeks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you want to meet Rutherford? You know, like it's Rutherford, just I don't know why Rutherford they would be something. <laughs> Rutherford be gays? <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. Well, in his case, like you know, it's it's a done deal. Oh yeah, it's yeah, nothing. Off, you know, or... <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> oh shit. Um, uh, do uh, do you have a name for your penis? Uh, let's let's get let's get down. There. I've <laughs> never named it myself, but various girlfriends have had their little pet names for it. Like what? Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Hulk Hogan, I think, was one. <laughs> what? <I'm> kidding. <laughs> Hulk a maniac. <laughs> no, no. Did I ever tell you my Fabio story? No. This is terrible. Again, I don't know why I'm telling these stories. Oh, I, I have to keep reminding myself people actually listen to these podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? It's so easy to just like be two dudes hanging out. Once you get used to the mics and you right. forget about it, it's. Um, so you tell the story. So that has two dangers, and one is that you tell stories that you probably shouldn't, and then the other is that you probably end up telling the same story well, that, a bunch of times. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I have told the same story a bunch of times, and somebody actually sent me an email, and they were like, "Yeah, dude, love the podcast, but you know that story." Blah, I don't remember what it was. Even you know, you've told that four times now, and so I apologized on a podcast, and then I got like thirty emails from people saying. Don't worry about it. Tell the same, tell them over again. Right, right. It's, you know, whatever, you know. It's- you should have sent that guy an email that said, you just sent me this email a week ago. <laughs> like, you sent me the same email a week ago, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Twist. It's like that guy. You ever heard? There's some college football player who called himself Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the real Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sued him to make him change his name. Uh-huh. And he should have changed his name to Lou Alcinder. Uh-huh. His real his, his, his birth name. first name. That's yeah. so funny. That would have been a funny but, twist. My friend Drew Droge, who's a comedian here, um, he does this uh, character. Um, he does this character named Chloe Sevigny, who is not really based on the actress Chloe Sevigny, but sort of, uh-huh. um, where he just dresses up and he has like a blonde wig and he does this like really, like he just pretentiously lists things. He's like, today I got uh, a caftan, a uh, little... Uh, uh, a sheepskin purse and permission to never speak to Gene Triplehorn again. Like, and he just goes on. It's so brilliant. And uh, and Chloe Sevigny heard about it uh-huh. and was uh, thought it was really funny at first, which uh-huh. is to her credit. Cool. But then, like, as Drew became more and more popular with this character, like, slowly became enraged. But obviously, you can't sue somebody if they're you know, a drag version of you. You yeah, know what I mean? Like obviously joking. Yeah. So I'm wondering if he, so, I mean, you can't, you can't win that case. Right. I mean, that's not like the guy, the cream of Jabbar suing the guy. Like, I don't know, maybe because they're both public figures. Maybe there's copyright. Issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how it works. I just remember at the time thinking a great response would be to just, <laughs> yeah, right. But the, the Fabio story is that oh, I, yeah. I was, um, uh, 
because some a woman called my dick Fabio once. So that's what reminded me. But oh, the, no. <laughs> it had nothing to do with grooming. Uh, but the, the, the Fabio story is I knew this woman a long time ago, and I, I don't even want to say how I knew her. But we, we had a brief thing. Uh, it didn't work out because she was very uh, possessive, uh-huh. extremely. She was Persian and just like wild and sexy as hell. Yeah, but yeah. like the next morning, she saw me chatting with someone at breakfast and freaked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Wait a minute, you know. Yeah. I thought that was clear. You know, I thought we talked about it. So anyway, there was no future in that. But mm. I, because of we we were part of the same organization, uh, we kept seeing each other at conferences. Yeah, and so f- I saw her for years after that. And every time it was like she'd have this like high school freak out and you know talk about me and mm, point, you know and like that and just always freaked out. Yeah, you know, like agitated because I was probably the only guy who had ever been like sorry, had enough. You know, right. <laughs> uh, and. <laughs> and uh, so like two or three years later, I was in the bar at the hotel where the conference was with a buddy of mine and this friend of hers was there and we were having some laughs and sort of, you know, like just sharing our amazement that, that she still gave a shit after all this time. And at some point, my friend said to her friend, like, really, what is going on with her? Like, why does she even care? I mean, look at Chris. He's not so good looking. He's, uh, you know, he's no big thing. Why, what's the deal? And she said, well, I shouldn't tell you this, but she told me that Chris, that you were the, the best lover she'd ever been with, even better than Fabio. Oh, <laughs> And she called your penis Fabio. No, no, no. Oh, that was a separate. <laughs> that, was that was a separate up. thing. But yeah, even it just better, reminded me of the even Fabio better story. than Fabio. Better than Fabio. No, like that's what I want tattooed on my. <laughs> that's ass. actually that's actually great. Um, <laughs> author bio, like <laughs> like on the back of the book, nothing else. I should change my Twitter. I'm better than Fabio. My Twitter handle. Yeah. <laughs> That'll yeah, be instead totally. of like blah 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 psychologist. It'll just be better than Fabio. Right, right, right. And tag Fabio in all your posts too, and be like, <laughs> "What's up, number two? <laughs> Beta male. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, uh, uh, shit. Anyway, so, hi. Connor Habib. What's up? You're here I'm on here. the podcast. You're a returning champ. I'm so excited um, I've... because I've gotten so many emails from the first podcast. You oh, know really? That? Yeah. Oh. I didn't really tell you that. Yeah, like, I've gotten so, I got so much response for that podcast. Well, that was a great... I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mentioned you at dinner the other night. I was having dinner with uh, a couple of... Um, a beautiful, beautiful women. Actually, I sent, I Instagrammed a thing of them wearing the new tangentially speaking hoodies. Uh-huh. Awesome. I think I described them as sex kittens, which is uh-huh. probably insulting <laughs> to doctoral students. But they're they're both studying biology, and I mentioned that I was going to be having uh, breakfast with you and doing a podcast. And you know, I they, I said he's a gay porn star, and he's also uh, you know he studied uh, evolutionary science with Lynn Margulis, you know, who was married to Carl Sagan. And that's right, because we were talking about Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of them was like, what? Lynn Margulis was married to Carl Sagan? Lynn yeah. Margulis, who developed the blah, 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 yeah, the yeah, mitochondrial, yeah, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And, and uh-huh. this guy knows her really well. And he's like, well, holy shit. Like, this whole world opened that's up for so her. That's so funny. You know? <laughs> so, yeah you're, yeah, you're a multifaceted do, guy. Do you know what's funny? I've been thinking about her so much lately um, for a lot of reasons. And one, simply that the world still hasn't caught up. Um, You know, I see all these, like, misunderstandings, and sort of after she died, 
Um, people just kind of blew past it, you know, like it was just sort of business as usual again, like, uh, as far as evolution and, you know, the, the way people think about evolution and random genetic mutation meets natural selection, all that kind of stuff, which was, she was an opponent of, but then, um, then there was, uh, also this, just this sort of mounting voice of dissent against the sort of standard narrative of evolution that's been building and building over the past few years since mm. she died. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with, um, new science of health where people are really interested in discussing gut biome and gut health right. and that kind yeah, of stuff. And so when you bring bacteria into a question of health and medicine, um, naturally it starts to link back to her work naturally mm. like you start to realize oh we are symbionts you know we're not yeah. just we don't just have these in us like we are symbiotic symbionts beings. that's the women i was speaking to one of them is yeah. doing her doctoral research on coral which uh-huh. is all, oh, yeah, all yeah, about yeah. symbionts yeah. yeah um yeah totally and i think uh and coral is actually a good one because it shows like the symbiotic nature of the entire planet because of the relation between coral and CO2 and weather and all that kind of stuff and the death of coral and what effect that yeah. has on, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I've just been thinking about her a lot lately. And, you know, I'm writing, I'm, I'm finishing this book, which will be out later this year about sex. But the next thing I think I want to write is, is re- I really want to write something about evolution, like just different theories of evolution, because it's just so fascinating to me. And um, there are so many different versions of evolution and uh, visions of evolutionary theory, how new species come about, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, w- you know, we really only get fed one. And again and again and again. And it's the one in my mind which has the least evidence to recommend to it. Although it's probably, you know, like, uh, it's worthwhile. And I'm glad some people are doing good work with it. But it's, uh, there are so many different versions and from real scientists, not just from intelligent design people. See, I think think this is a a case where... I agree with you. And honestly, I've been hesitant to get into this, certainly in writing, um, but even in any sort of public discussion, because it's uh, such a highly charged political thing, mm-hmm. you know, with this, the ignorant religious right just saying, eh, evolution, it's just the theory. They're full of shit. The, right. You know, God did not create the universe in seven days. Shut the fuck up. Right. But it is true, at least I believe, that the Darwinian understanding of things is not the final word. There yeah. are things happening beyond that that are not understood. Right. And the problem is that by saying that you open the door to the crazies yeah you know it's kind of like the nazis ruined a lot of viable avenues of scientific research right right right. You yeah know? so you can't talk about anything similar to eugenics since the nazis you can't even like just you know like does it make sense for some types of people with some genetic situations to be sterilized Mm -hmm. it does it clearly does you know is is the is there some argument to be made for some sort of uh some mechanisms and i'm not saying forced mechanisms or i'm not saying people should be rounded up and you know castrated but there is the the species is evolving and it's evolving in a bad direction because we are making allowances for all these infirmities that would have been filtered out previously mm-hmm. right and you can say you know like i'm wearing glasses that's that's an example of it and there are many more like more yeah. egregious examples but anyway that discussion can't be had yeah yeah i mean i think 
I, I, I totally get what you mean. It's like, but it, it's false op- it's, because it's a false opposition. Yeah. It's like, y- y- not only do you, so yeah, well, if you talk about it, you might open the door to religious crazies, but by not talking about it, you <laughs> keep the door open for the scientific crazies, right? So exactly. like, and you keep so, the door closed to advancement of the science because totally. you're not entertaining anything that challenges the central dogma. And ultimately you fuel the religious crazies because so like we have this version of evolution, again, random genetic mutation meets natural selection equals new species. It's like, um, because there are so many problems with that, you have people who are intelligent design people who have, uh, who have real criticisms. Right. Their criticisms are valid. Yeah. Their conclusion is completely stupid. They don't have anything to rest on. They don't go anywhere with it. And basically they're using their criticisms to, um, uh, bolster a foregone conclusion for them, which is that God created everything intelligently and all that kind of shit. So it's, it's bullshit. But, uh, uh, the the but the the fact is because we keep presenting this one version those criticisms remain in place right and so you have these whole um groups of people who are like well your version of evolution doesn't explain uh you know the fossil record it doesn't so on and so forth it doesn't explain all these holes that we don't get so um i think we just oh we're gonna pause we're gonna pause go ahead oh did the door just get unlocked where the roommate appears to be out of the shower, and yes, the door is unlocked. I am glad to report we are no longer locked out of the house. And you're I'm ass- clumsy, Carl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. I- so, all right. I pause this. So we're back. Oh, okay. Connor's so- back. His shoes are tied. The door's unlocked. We're talking about evolution. Rock and roll. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like you give you give those crazy people on the religious side fuel because you're wrong because you've taken a shortcut and by obstinately yeah. refusing anything else, you know, it just it it's a total power play. And yeah. I don't. I'm not. I'm just not down with it. You're being absolutist, and absolutist positions are always weak. Right. You know, it's inflexible, it's rigid, it cracks. I, I got it last night at, at dinner. I got into a conversation. I told you I interviewed uh, this this woman who is a rocket, yeah, essentially yeah. a rocket scientist, and really interesting person. And then I had dinner with her family, and the graduate student is her granddaughter. Okay. Actually, so we're having this, and they're like pretty avowed atheists Mm -hmm. and i found myself in the position of arguing against the atheist position yeah which is unusual for me and um but but it's the same sort of uh, dynamic, I think, where I th- you know Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Bill Maher and these people yeah. who are like who are absolutists. Not only is there a religious fervor in their certainty that I find you know that they should be picking up if they have any sense of irony, <laughs> right. um, but also it's inaccurate because and the, the argument I was making was um, that God is a placebo. Mm-hmm. And so now you can argue on one side, well, placebo is by definition not real. But on the other side, I say, well, but the effects of placebo are well-documented, measurable, and tangible. Mm-hmm. So if you take a placebo and your heart rate predictably decreases, your blood pressure decreases, your immune response increases, whatever it is, you can't tell me the placebo is not real because its effects are real, mm-hmm. right? And I think God, religion, functions in the same way. So you can say, yes, it's imaginary, but look, it has these tangible effects on people. Mm-hmm. And we all sort of, I think we have to recognize that on some level, we all 
create our reality. There is a reality out there, mm-hmm. but it anything that we're perceiving is is at least partly a creation of our own minds. So we do live in a created reality anyway. So I think we can sort of, if you're really smart and you think through these things, I think you can get to the point where you can say, well, all right, it's all an illusion anyway. Why don't I pick the illusion that's going to work best for me? Right. I think it, it, I've been thinking about these things in a few ways recently. So the placebo thing is really interesting to me because I want to go keep going with that and say that um, everything is a placebo, um, which is which is a difficult. It it, it, it it and let me explain a little bit more. So like something that like neuroscientists and like um, cognitive. Uh, cognitive scientists and stuff like that love talking about is the failure of memory and the illusion of perception and cognitive dissonance and all that kind of stuff because our senses are flawed and our memory is flawed and all that. But then, like, why is that not extended to the fact that our culture is created by collective memory? So, like, consensus reality itself is based on all those principles they're talking about, but somehow they're not willing to extend that into a larger reality. Um, so it's like, well, at the individual level, you're probably wrong, even if you experience, but when we get to culture, no, 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 it's right. You know, like they sort of, uh, uh, they just sort of dismiss that that could happen on a cultural level. Who's they? Um, it's not that uh, cognitive scientists and cognitive neuroscientists scientists. they don't they don't dismiss it actually they just don't talk about it um, <clears throat> they don't talk about extending those models into culture into collective memory into collective uh, understandings of how the world works so for me you, sorry to interrupt yeah, no, you, but go you ahead. know who does historians historians you're right you know because yes. the, historians are very open about the fact that nobody can ever write a perfectly accurate history because right. it's always you're you're always stringing things together into a story that makes sense to you right and it's never the story it's your story yeah yeah so, yeah i love that no 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 i love that and i love that actually like a lot of these more postmodern historians have taken that on in a real way and i i tend to gravitate toward that model a, a little bit more yeah. but when i say everything's a placebo <laughs> i don't know if i'm going to be able to go through this in a way that sounds uh interesting to you but okay so like right now i'm holding a grapefruit everybody um so like <laughs> if you look at that grapefruit and i look at it um we're both going to receive different sort of uh imaginal um imaginal response mm-hmm. so or maybe the grapefruit's not the best side one because it's food so we'll have a similar one but if i put a stone in front of you and i say look at that and we both look at it and i say and I say, so what's the first thing that pops into your mind? You're going to have a different response than I do, right? right? Or sometimes we might have the same response, which would be really weird. And then there's weird psychic shit going on probably. But if you look at the stone, I look at the stone, we both have a different imaginative reaction immediately. Then what that means to me is that everything around us is giving us is giving each individual a different cue, a different imaginal inner world, inner experience kind of cue. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, <clears throat> The, the places where those imaginal cues overlap, like, so I look at something, you look at something, we sort of think the same thing really quickly. I think that that is, like, where our inner world overlaps and becomes sort of dense. Um, it becomes uh, more of a consensus thing than, a, uh, than an individuated thing. But 
those can shift at any point. Mm-hmm. Like culture can force us to shift those a little bit sure, more. Sure, like, education shifts it. I, yeah. I, in your example, I was thinking, you know, if a geologist were sitting here, yeah, you know, she'd look at it and say, "Oh, it's basalt or, to- you know, or totally. whatever," and we'd be like, "It looks like a dick." No, it looks like a pussy, or it looks like a cloud. You know, <laughs> right, it's right. Like, whatever, you know. Where it's, so education can change what resonates. The inner layering, totally. Yeah. And culture. So, like, desire is a great example too. Like, we tend to think that, like. Uh, Lots of people tend to think that um, what we're attracted to is just some sort of inborn essential thing. But Mm. obviously, you look from culture to culture, time to time, and there are different standards of beauty, like, throughout time. Even when you have these, like, neuroscience studies that are like, well, everybody's attracted to symmetry. It's like, well, no, that's not true. Mm. Like, there have been cultures that are attracted to, like, weird, um, weird scarified features and, you know, asymmetry and different kinds of, uh, different kinds of bodies, that sort of stuff. And so, we know even something like down to our cell level where we get physically aroused by looking at something is changing. So that's what I mean by everything is placebo. Like nothing has its own sort of inherent, uh, reactive being like it interacts with our individuality Mm. totally differently. That's, that's interesting. I was reading about disgust the other day Mm. and, uh, I was interested to learn that babies, infants show no disgust at Uh anything. Huh. They'll play with shit. Yeah. They'll play with vomit. Uh, you know, like uh, whatever insects. Like they, they all that stuff appears to be learned. The one thing now, they didn't mention this in the article I read, but one thing I've read is that um, infants of all cultures and baby primates all react uh, in terror to snakes. To snakes. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard. Th- I've heard that too. But then. So then you have people who own snakes when they get older, right? And you have right, but you can like overcome it, right? Or or you could be fascinated by your fear of it. But I'm t- right. So if we're going to talk about like whether there are like absolute inborn responses to yeah. things, right? That are they're pre any sort of learning or cultural filtering or anything. It seems that snake thing could be a good candidate. Yeah, a, sna- a snake thing is close. Like in- incest is like a close thing, but then you have cultures where like their gods are incest gods that yeah. you know, and that's what created the world. And well, like you, ours, you, like Christianity. I mean, yeah. I don't know that it's incest, but virgin birth. Come on, yeah, now. it's cl- it's close. There's something there's something weird, and so so I mean that makes me wonder, Talk like a mama's inborn. I don't know it. I have trouble sort of conceiving of of uh, of inborn like so yeah. they put the snake in with the baby and the baby scream like I don't know how they would measure that yeah, in every even, culture. They show them images like they'll have the baby looking at a computer screen and it'll show you know all sorts of images. Somebody pointing a gun at him, you know, a sunset, uh-huh. blah blah blah. And the only thing that freaks the baby out is snake, ah, snake every time. Uh-huh. And the same thing with with little primates, uh, little you know non-human primates. Huh. So it's it's a strange thing, and they do it with Eskimo kids or Inuit or whatever. Like people who have never seen snakes, right? There, there's no, you know no cultural relevance, no. And it's in, so this is another thing that I think about. I mean, not that I would discredit that 
study. I don't know enough about it, but something that I think about is those studies are always done with images, right? Like when we do like arousal studies too, it has to do with images and it's like, well, but you're reacting to like an image in a controlled setting where you're saying like, here are all these things and now here's like the visual representation of this one thing. I wonder if it would be different. You know, if you encountered snakes, if you encountered them outside of that context, if someone cooked a snake and gave it to you to eat, would you have that response? You know what I mean? Is it just an image of a snake in a certain way that's like surprising you within the context of other images? All that kind of stuff makes me sort of like, well, I bet there are some context, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Although imagine, you know, trying to get women to volunteer to let you put their infant in a cage with a snake. Right on. I think we need to do that. Yeah. (laughs) I was talking to a friend of mine in the entertainment business recently. I hope I'm not. So I don't think this is top secret, but he told me they were working on a show with a guy who is, it's one of these reality shows like, you know, fear factor or something. But this guy is, um, his plan is to be swallowed by an anaconda. His that's what he wants. That's what he wants to do. And he's got, he's like made this suit, this pressure resistant suit. Oh my gosh. And, you know, he's going to go to Peru and find one of those massive <laughs> things and get himself swallowed. Because apparently they, and I, and I was like, so then he's going to get shit out or what? Yeah, yeah. And he said, no, what they do is they swallow you. And then when they're not digesting you or whatever, they, spit they vomit you back, you back out. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> he'll know inside the anaconda. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I think that's totally sexual. When I, when I was a little boy, before I understood what sex was, I would do this thing where, you know, like how they have like the pig roast where the pig has the apple in its mouth or yeah. whatever. I didn't understand sex. So I would do two things. And one was... Um, I mean, I'm talking about, I was like four, you know, maybe, maybe even three, like younger, I would take off all my clothes and I would put an apple in my mouth and I would like stick my ass up in the air. Like I was a pig, like with an Uh. apple in my mouth. And then, and then the other thing I would do is I would take my blankets and I would, uh, it, in bed in the morning, I would like take off all my clothes and like get under the blankets and like wrap them around me and pretend I was in something stomach. So like I think that wow. consumption thing. You were casting about. <laughs> Did you ever yeah. see the movie Deliverance? I've never seen it, really? which obviously I know the, the, the squeak like a pig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying image for for a guy who grew up in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh no, the rednecks are going to get me. (laughs) I'm sure I would have been like so excited about it. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. You might get off on it. You you might have a completely. You'd be the baby who's like, give me another snake. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, oh fuck, now. (laughs) Well, talking about. Oh, one of my favorite uh, quotes about all this is uh, Philip K. Dick. Uh-huh. Or, by the way, Philip K. Dick is a, is a nickname for my penis. Uh- um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, anyway, he said, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't disappear. Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't disappear. Yeah. I'm down with that, although how would you know if you stopped believing or continue to believe? I mean, belief is a contingent word. Well, it's there. a funny thing, right? Like yeah. with placebo, our original example. Right. Because there are, there's all sorts of research, research now that shows that even if you even tell if you know, people it still it's a placebo, works. Yeah. it still works. Yeah. yeah, totally. There was a great study um, where, oh gosh, what was it? It was like 
it was in Italy, and they were giving people this uh, pill that was blue. Oh yeah. Do you know about that? Oh, I and know like, the colors have different. Yes, effects. and yeah. some some of the the it, women fell asleep. It was supposed to make you go to sleep, and the men stayed up, and it was all placebo. Yeah. And they realized that like, oh wait, this color is the same color as the football team, and so for some reason, oh. like gender lines were dividing like how it, they were interacting with the color, and then there's also sham surgery. Have you heard about I that? Have. I have on knees just recently. Oh, there's a, something they did just recently so crazy yeah Yeah, so for people who don't know what sham surgery is it's the like you go in for surgery and they tell you they've done it and they haven't done really anything except telling you they've done it and then your your body's healed sometimes they have opened your skin or they'll they'll open you up so you can see that you've got stitches yeah 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 exactly Yeah, which is ethically kind of strange. I, I I don't know how they get permission to do it. Yeah, yeah I, I remember reading about that years ago, um, and it was it was with some sort of heart surgery, or maybe back surgery. And I was ta- talking to a friend of mine about it, who's a surgeon in Spain, and and uh, you know I was he was a super rationalist, you know everything's mechanical, and I was like, no hypnosis, look at this, look at that, and. Um, he used to pay me to come and harass him twice a week. I, I was uh-huh. his English teacher, conversational English. You as dominatrix? Sort of. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure I was dominating, but that, that was what I did for a living. I, I went to these hospitals and um, sort of debated with doctors about what they knew way better than I did. Yeah. Just because it kept the conversation interesting and it opened them up to aspects of their field that they had never thought about, you know, and, and it's what I happen to be interested in. So it worked for both of us. But I remember, remember talking with him about this and saying, no, you know, I've read about this, this heart surgery where they, they'll like cut open the skin and then sew it back up again. And you know, the, the patient doesn't know and the effects down the road are blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you know, that's, you're so full of shit because you would never be allowed to do that. And I remember thinking, he's got a point. How are you going to get permission? Yeah, but yeah. they have done it. They have know? done it. It's in peer review journals. for Yeah. Sure. They, just, journals. they yeah. just did the thing. I just, within the last week I was reading about the, the knee surgery, Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and maybe that's arthroscopic. So maybe it's not as invasive. Uh-huh. I, I don't really know what the, you probably, I mean, was. a lot of times when you go in for surgery, you sign a form that says that you are submitting yourself to the procedures that they right. deem fit. So it's probably in the form somewhere that yeah. you're signing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, it, it's it's a little tough because they, um, like, when, like even when you, like I know sometimes when you go into a hospital, you have to sign a form that says you can let a medical student work on you. Right. Like when people, medical students have to learn to do open lines into your heart. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of paperwork that people are just like, well, okay. You know, they yeah. sign it and don't even look at it. But it might be more controlled than that too. I don't know. Yeah. And it varies. They might say we're countries. using a new, we're using a new procedure. That might be how they describe it. <laughs> you know, in fact, it's like the oldest procedure it's, ever. It's but a procedure called do nothing and yeah. see if you die. This is my doctor in San Francisco was uh, very much, he was the best doctor I've ever had. He has a, he's a kind of famous doctor. He has a book out and he's an anthroposophical doctor. This is Rudolf Steiner's system of medicine, but he, to be an anthroposophical doctor, you have to be licensed in another form of medicine. So he was an MD Hmm. and an anthroposophical doctor and he did nutrition and stuff. And I would go in. I don't have regular health problems. I don't get colds. I don't get, you know, I I always have sort of weird shit, you know? And so I went in and he was like, (laughs) um, he would often say things like, well, 
we could go down the long, expensive, and ultimately unfruitful and unproductive path of discovering what's causing your pain, or you could just let it go away. <laughs> and I always felt better Stop after I went in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just always Smart went away. Yeah. yeah. This is great. You ever heard of John Sarno? No. Dr. John Sarno? He, uh, he's a... I don't know if he's still practicing, but he was an um, uh, orthopedic surgeon, uh, taught at Columbia, a medical school in New York, very prestigious kind of medical situation. And so he was doing back surgery, people with herniated discs and you know chronic back pain and stuff, did lots of surgery. And he started to notice that he would see people who had back pain uh, but didn't have any herniated disc. And mm-hmm. he would see other people who had herniated discs, but not where the pain was, or they were having no pain at all. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute. This idea that herniated discs cause back pain like, isn't empirically supported right. by what he was seeing. So, and I don't remember the whole story, but uh, I don't know whether he had personal back, you know, he personally suffered mm-hmm. from back pain, whatever. But he came to the conclusion that many, if not most cases of chronic back pain are psychogenic. Yeah. It's stress. Huh. And it mm-hmm. is being expressed in your body as stress tends to be. And your body knows where its weak points are. And so when it's expressed in the place where you have the herniated disc, that doesn't mean that the herniated disc is causing the pain. It just mean that, means that it's being expressed there because, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the water will, will break the dam at its weakest point, right? And so it's, the problem is the rising water. And, and so he, right. what yeah. he does is kind of like what your doctor did, where he'll talk to people and say, okay, look, you know, let's talk about your life. What's going on in your life? And uh, almost always there's some major stress happening. Right. And then he's like, well, okay, look, here's the thing. You know, this stress can express itself as pain, blah, 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 blah. It's not related to a structural problem. There's no, you know, degenerative situation. Da, 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 da. And just having that conversation makes like 90% of the people pain-free. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Jerome Groupman had like a passage in his book, I think it's called The Anatomy of Hope or whatever, where... Is it Joel or Jerome? I think it's Jerome Groupman. He's a doctor. Um, and he wrote about not worshipping at the volcano god of pain. Right. Where like, you know, as soon as you get into this state where you're like, my pain, my pain, my pain, you start worshipping this like god inside of yourself and yeah. it gets worse and never goes away. And yeah. um, But I think stress is one of those weird things like placebo where we throw that word out with having no idea. It's just sort of a catch-all. It's like, oh, well, that's placebo. Well, yeah. okay. How does that work? Right. And stress is the same thing. It's like, oh, well, you're under a lot of stress and so no wonder your body is experiencing this. It's like, wait, but what? <laughs> like, Why doesn't that change our worldview? Why doesn't the fact that some sort of mental trigger that these external things in our environment that are causing us stress or, in, or transferring into internal things like, oh, shit, I didn't pay that bill today. I didn't pay that bill. I didn't pay that bill. Oh, my gosh, my back hurts like why we're not talking about those pathways we just say it you know and that to Mm. me is that's one of those weird things that should change our worldview entirely that you know like instead of just thinking it's purely physical yeah you ever heard of robert ader no robert ader was uh he just died a few years ago but i was lucky enough to meet him i I spoke with him at a psychoneuroimmunology conference in argentina (laughs) There you go. Why not? PNI, baby. PNI. Uh, yeah, that was a strange thing. Okay, I was in grad school, 
I hadn't even finished my master's degree yet, but I was friends with Stanley Krippner, who's, mm-hmm. you may have heard a podcast mm-hmm. or two I did with him. Yeah. Um, anyway, Stanley used to invite me to conferences with him all over the world. I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast before. And, um, and, and so I was, uh, most of the time I was just carrying his bags. Yeah. Lynn used to do that with me too. So I know the experience. Yeah, it's like fantastic. you're around all these. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. And you're like, and you're like the protege of the big shot, which gets right. you into great situations. <laughs> um, and of course, in my case, there was a lot of, uh, um, seduction going on because Stanley's gay. And so everyone thought I was his, you know, younger gay boyfriend. <laughs> uh, and by the time they found out that wasn't true, it was too late. <laughs> You're already getting fucked. (laughs) But anyway, and I'll tell you what, there is no better place. As a straight man, there's no better place to meet women than a psychology conference. When they think you're gay. Yeah, I mean, that was just icing on the cake. But, I mean, a psychology conference is 80% women Mm. in their 30s and 40s who are smart, open-minded, and, and, you know, want to have something new. And they're at a conference, so everybody knows that's already yeah, yeah, right. free for all. <laughs> it's like an orgy. So, so anyway, I, uh, I was supposed to go to this conference with Stanley, and uh, but just as his his buddy, and uh, like a couple, like a week before, he sends me an email saying, "Oh, listen, uh, you know, somebody couldn't make it to the conference, so um, and they were looking for someone to fill the spot, so I I volunteered you." I was like, you what? He's like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna speak on alternative cancer treatments. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I don't know anything about alternative <laughs> cancer treatments. He's like, well, I told him you're an international expert, and <laughs> so you know, bone up on it, you'll be fine. So I get to this conference, and I I'm thinking I'm still not really freaking out because a lot of the things he spoke at there would be you know 50 to 100 people and pretty casual, you know, sort of hippies making mandalas and stuff. Yeah. We get to this thing. This was in Buenos Aires, and they took us out to see the the room where we'd be speaking the next day. And it was like, and they said, "Oh yeah," and it was huge. It was huge. And they said, "Okay, so the first day there are going to be eight hundred uh, people in the audience, all physicians, plus TV and radio and wow. blah blah blah." And the next day it'll be two thousand. It's open to the public oh. and it's sold out. <laughs> What? And, oh, and oh, and I told them you'll speak in Spanish. Like what? <laughs> like okay, I speak Spanish, but I'm not. You know, I yeah. don't present in Spanish. And I'm going to need you to have your shirt off, Chris. <laughs> it was incredible. That was that was as close as I've ever come to freaking out. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of public speaking, but anyway, Robert Ader was there, and uh, Robert Ader was the first person to uh, demonstrate in a laboratory that stress affects the immune system. Hmm. And the way he did that was interesting. He had uh, he had rats that he was giving, um, what was it, like a, a, an artificial sweetener. What's that famous, you know, the typical artificial? Oh, like sweet and low or equal or, oh, you mean aspartame. A, well, yeah, or aspartame yeah, yeah. or they were, I don't know, whatever. But an artificial sweetener in their water and together with that, uh, an immune suppressant. And... So their immune responses were were suppressed by this chemical that was paired with the sweetener. And then uh, after I don't know how many uh, sessions, then he just gave them the sweetener and measured the exact same immune suppression. So what he was showing was that some 
neutral sensory input could have this effect. So there was, right. there's this, you know, mind brain connection, or, uh, you know, mind body connection and all that kind of stuff. So was, this was a long time ago in the probably seventies. He did this and it was pretty groundbreaking uh, mm-hmm. research at the time, but you're right. It's, it's not, even though there is this research and, and even the most hardened scientists will admit that there is this sort of connection it's not something that's being investigated very much because there's no money in it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's like, you ever read Lives of a Cell by Lewis yeah, yeah, Thomas? Yeah. Well, we, may have, we may have spoken about this, but you remember there's a chapter where he talks about warts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, in Ireland... The hypnos- hypnosis and warts, is that... Well, and yeah. or sort of placebo or ritual yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Like, you cut a potato and you rub your right. wart yes, with it, totally. and then you bury it under a full moon or whatever. Yeah. And there are these these rituals all over the world, and they all work. And and what he says is, he's an oncologist, and he says, okay, now what are we doing there? What Our body is distinguishing wart cells from non-wart cells, eliminating the wart cells with no damage to the surrounding cells. That's the holy grail of oncology. Right. And yet, there's no research looking into this. It's right there, right in front of us. We know the mechanisms there, but because we don't understand how it works, and because nobody's going to make any money, (laughs) we're not investigating it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think think in general... So that ties into that ties into evolution, you know, in a lot of ways as well, because, you know, it, it means that since there is interaction, as we know, even just not from medicine, but from like neuroplasticity studies and that sort of stuff, since we know that we know that evolution must be affected by by the inner state and uh, conceptual life uh, of the organism. But that's not included in evolution. Right. Like the fact that you can change body states by thinking, you know, like that's right. weird. Um, I mean, there are some people who are doing epigenetics work, but um but then also just get back to the medicine aspect of it. I mean, I think that there is like when I hear and think about all this stuff, the entire concept of medicine, the way that we practice it now, I think it's, I think there's so many things great about it and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell us to all stop taking vaccines and all that sort of thing. Though I have my suspicions about some of them, not all of them. But I think that the whole concept of medicine needs to be more flexible in its certainty, just like the evolution mm. thing. And and so, like, you know, one of the things that Andrew Weil says, which I think is really brilliant, is like therapies tend to work better when they first come out and then mm. they slow down. Yeah, like statistically, that, yeah. like you just see that they yeah. stop working after a while. Yeah. And also diseases change from era to era, which is yeah. also really fascinating. So if you have... Um, if you have certain diseases at certain times, they all relate to the worldview of the time. And this is a really mind-blowing thing to me. And part of it is because it's conceptually how we organize our thoughts about the body and health and all that. Like you were talking about, what's his name, Ader? Yeah. Talking about um, checking the immune system of mm-hmm. the of the rats. Well, the immune system is a really arbitrary concept. Like it's real when we decide to look at it from that stance, but it's not really real. It's where we decide to bound and put, 
put the framework for certain lines of thinking when we look into an organism. But if we change our perspective and, you know, change the boundaries and the borders of what's what and where the discretion is and all that kind of stuff, suddenly we have a totally new concept. So right now in our time, so many of the huge diseases are environmental diseases. Like, and we have all these environmental anxieties. You know, before you would have tribal diseases that were related to human relations with each other, like, Mm. oh, well, this person is having, you know, a bad interaction with this person. So, uh, you know, they've been attacked by that person's spirit or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or, um, you know, uh, how many how many years ago I'm trying to think of uh, other just diseases that were like related to you know, germ thinking, which is sort of changed now. We think of things in terms of toxicity. We think in terms of like the body itself is always healthy, but you know, it's the outside world that comes in and pollutes it. Mm. And so I think, I think that, uh, it's all metaphorical and it's all related to our framework. And so that needs to be recognized a little bit more and worked with and, and built upon. And it's just crazy to me that it always becomes, as we were saying with the models of evolution, totally inflexible. Yeah. And then we wonder why like people are dying, why they're sick, like why, you know, we can't beat certain diseases, you know, why. And it's like, well, we're just not able to like get our heads out of looking at it in a certain way well even uh, to take your your point a little further the the diseases are being named somewhat arbitrarily oh totally you know we talk about cancer as if it is a thing absolutely you know where what we're talking about are many different types of cell mutations and and our cells are mutating all the time yeah and it and normally it just doesn't get out of control occasionally it does and then we call that cancer but we're not saying we're all walking around with a low level level cancer right because that's the normal state of being so it's it's true it's funny how i mean you know we keep coming up against the same thing how our our inner reality affects at least the perception of outer reality reality if not the reality itself like i I was reading recently about um how they gave uh, tests of color perception to people who spoke different languages. And in some language, I don't remember if it was French or, or what the exact example was, but it's like there was, you know, they, they got a, they have a poster with like lots of like colors sort of merged together. Right. And the idea is pick as many colors out of that as you see distinctly. Mm-hmm. And people who have words for particular colors, see them in the poster. Right, and those right. who don't have a word for it don't. So like if, if your language has a particular word for that sort of burnt orange color, right. then you see it. If your language doesn't, you don't. Yeah, I really think, weird. Yeah, I think that certain concepts in certain periods of time too, like um, just to go on with that a little bit, like um, the the was it the Greeks that everybody said they didn't have the word for blue, like they didn't oh, see the color right, blue, the wine, the wine dark, dark sea, sea was like yeah, the, yeah. and so. Um, uh, so that's one example. I mean, the way that people tend to think about that then is like, oh, well, then like when you name it, like you know, suddenly, you know, you can talk about it more, you have the language for it, blah, blah, blah. So, like, there's so much weight put on language. And I like that there is some weight put on language. But I also think certain concepts, colors, materialities, all that kind of stuff, seek words and seek our conceptualization of them at different times. So it's not just all on us to come up with the word and the concept, but also certain things arise in our consciousness. So yeah. like I think perspective is one of the it's that's been talked about a lot like perspective in the um 
15th and 16th century um, when uh, Durer, am I saying his name right, Um, you know, started putting perspective in his paintings. And so suddenly, like, you have uh, people like to say, oh, well, that's just this new artistic movement and motion. It's like, but there's so much more evidence and understanding that people didn't see in the same kind of three-dimensional way as... uh, as we do now up until that time. And so perspective rose up and became something that people started to perceive depth. And it, whereas everything before could have just been overlaid images and sort of blurs of color in a certain way. And that can't just be that someone, uh, came up with a concept and then suddenly it was everywhere. That's something outside of us. I feel like, or outside of us, I don't like that term, but something interacting with our consciousness that decided to appear at that moment too. That's an evolutionary state of the cosmos, really like deciding to enact itself through humanity in a certain way. So you think that that the human brain just wasn't ready to deal with representative perspective until that point and suddenly Um, it was? Uh, yeah and not maybe not suddenly yeah i feel like i feel like uh the the mind was not attuned to whatever frequency or dimensionality that was on and something changed so we started interacting with a different dimensionality at that point well that that's an interesting idea there's a book i read years ago uh the i think it's called the forest people colin Mm. turnbull an anthropologist yeah yeah, i know that with the, the pygmies um, he was, so he was living with the pygmies and they, they live in really dense forest. And one of them got sick at some point and he volunteered to, to take him to a hospital. And I remember the scene where he, they're in the truck, he gets in the truck and they're driving for hours and hours and they finally leave this forest, which this pygmy had never left in his life. And they're, so it's African savanna and they come up to a hilltop and down below are herds of elephants and, and zebras mm-hmm. and the, the pygmy looks and he says, what are those tiny little animals? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he just has absolutely no wow. sense of depth and, and, and distance because he's, he's never seen distance. Yeah. You know? He's you know never seen more than 30, 30 meters ahead probably you know in the right. jungle, so that yeah interesting interesting strange stuff and I also remember some studies of wait can I can yeah, I just yeah, jump, jump in on in, that yeah. real quick? so I I think then another thing that you can do then is say so I th- I think a lot of people might hear that and be like oh like he'd never seen he'd never encountered that kind of distance so he didn't know that those animals were actually animal size and whatever right but then take that into the way that we see things too and say, uh, it's not that we're right. Um, it could be as someone comes at what we call closer to us. Like if you see someone in the distance and they come closer, maybe they're actually just getting larger. Like, <laughs> oh, don't fuck with us. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. We're fuck- not stoned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, but, I'm, <laughs> but I'm not trying to fuck with you. It's like it, our organization of our senses relates to our conceptual framework for what happens. So if someone, if 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 we have a certain concept of space, we're going to consider that person as being farther away and coming closer and closer. So what are you telling me? Like like everything in your refrigerator discipline isn't there when the doors close? Well, I, I, mean, I, am, I am interested in that, but I, that's not <laughs> that's not as cool to me as the person becoming larger. Um, the, the refrigerator thing 
<laughs> yes, I I will agree. Uh-huh. I, I won't say that it's not there. Like I don't see. I don't like that either because it's like it's it it revolves around some sort of objectivity of materiality still in a way that I feel uncomfortable with. So like the way that I try to think of things, and this is a Rudolf Steiner thing that just. I can't deal with sometimes where I really try to think about where he said, you know, the universe is not made of things, but evolving states of consciousness. So if we think of every single object as an evolving state of consciousness and every impression as an evolving state of consciousness, rather than, um, rather than stuff, something that's active and is a mood and is a kind of has its own sort of conceptual life, then it sort of changes whether or not asking the question of whether or not the stuff in my refrigerator is there when it's closed or not. It sort of means, well, when I approach the refrigerator and open it, there's a different mood and there's a different state than when I'm not approaching it and opening it. And so how do we think of that? Because we tend to think of like, oh, well, it's there, it's there, it's there all the time. It's there whether you're there or not. But, um, and the way to counter that is like, well, it's not there if you're not looking into it, dude. But uh, I think that the other way of thinking about it... My half and half is evolving toward a very unhappy state. <laughs> I can tell you whether I'm there or not. Yeah, to- <laughs> totally. But it's it, it's in relation to you, right? Um, so it's there and it's not there at the same time. I don't know, man. Why, know. why, that, why stop there, though? It what, is fucking there. It's there and it's, it's like curling. No, no, no. But my question know? is wh- what... Uh, it's like... <laughs> You've encountered all kinds of weird shit in your life, right? Yeah. So these moments where They're we're like, that fuck that. Like, <laughs> those are the most interesting moments to me in people's personality. Like, why are you stopping there? What's resistant? What is, well, what's be, resistant? Because, I mean, because, like, I'm, I'm willing to entertain a lot of loopy shit. But the idea that everything disappears in my refrigerator when I close the door, that, that just seems unnecessarily silly. I mean, I like you know it's what's the term in science parsimony you mm-hmm. know and occam's razor and all that stuff like the simplest explanation normally is the correct one mm-hmm. and it just makes a lot more sense to me that the shit in my refrigerator is there and it stays there and the light goes off and you know it, it gets old and dry and curdles and whatever you know whether i'm there or not yeah well, so I, I, I don't think the observer principle is is really interacting that much with the lettuce in my fridge. But I, I, yeah, I mean, I I agree with you when it's presented in that kind of simple terms. <laughs> what what I can't what I can't what I can't sort of agree with is like, um, how about this? This is a this is a, this is something that will drive me crazy and make me feel sort of like. Um, bonkers, and I, I I like the way this makes me feel, which is that I can't see my face, but you can right now, right? Then everybody in the world has a different relationship to my face than I have to my own face. Right. Yet it's mine. It's the closest thing to my brain and my voice and my ears, you know, that uh, of anything. But I can't see it. So the existence of my face in the world is totally opposed to the way that I conceptualize my own face. Like it's it, it has nothing to do with the way I think about my you own see face. yourself as a bearded black man. Yeah. <laughs> what if you're like, that's what you look like? It's like a Twilight Zone episode. That's um, right. I, I'm, every time I look in the mirror, I'm amazed that I don't see Brad Pitt looking back at me. I don't know how that happens. I'm sure that when I'm not, it's like the refrigerator thing, right? When I'm not looking at my face, I look just like Brad Pitt. Yeah. But, but it is weird that you can't, you, you don't have the concept of your face that I have right now. 
Right. Yeah. Of course. I mean, self-image is laden with so much bizarre psychological stuff. Of course, and then you get like interesting psychological cases. Right. You know, um, anorexia and body dysmor- dys- yeah, dysmorphic, yeah, yeah. Uh, or dysmorphic uh, disease. Body dysmorphia. Yeah. Yeah. Called, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, to get someone to actually see themselves the way others do, assuming that uh, there's some commonality among the others. Even you know, I, I remember being shocked uh i think i was in latin america um the way women were responding to me the first time i went to mexico i think it was and um it it was just this weird thing like what's going on and and eventually somebody explained to me like white is really cool here Mm -hmm. you know and like because i've always felt like i'm pale and that's an ugly thing i'd much rather have brown tan skin you know and uh it's just weird to be in a culture where being pale is cool and attractive and like well how can that be attractive it is objectively less attractive than brown mexican skin Uh at least to me and you know so objectively what the hell's objectively mean but it seems to me like aesthetically there is a more beautiful skin tone and a less beautiful skin tone and you know so it's just interesting to how you're right it's so I mean, I was I was thinking about um, how language. We were talking earlier about uh, language and color perception and all that, and how culture mitigates these things. Um, I'm interested in how it works on an even deeper level, which is that the the brain, the baby's brain, develops within a linguistic uh, a, a context of meaning, mm-hmm. a context of significance, and things like that, and. The brain is different. Uh, uh, the brain of someone who grows up speaking French is different than the brain of someone who grows up speaking Swahili. Right. It is a different brain. And, you know, the, even the musculature and the tongue and the mm-hmm. face and like you can look at a picture of someone and, and guess with very high accuracy whether they grew up speaking French or German or Italian, just from the way their face has developed, you know, very interesting stuff. And so anyway, like it's not just that we sort of choose our reality based on whatever the vocabulary is that's available to us. It's somehow that vocabulary shapes our brains. Mm -hmm. So then even if we go and learn another language as an adult, we are still like French brained. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is bizarre because we assume all people are more or less the same. I I remember thinking about this a lot because my ex-girlfriend, Peggy, um, I was I was doing doc, you know, my graduate work and I was living with her and she um, she grew up speaking French, Catalan, Spanish and English. <laughs> wow. Right. She spoke French with her mother, Catalan with her father, Spanish with all her friends. And mm-hmm. then she moved to Florida when she was eight, I think, and, and spoke English at a very young age. And I remember just one day listening to her while she was talking on the phone. So she's talking with me in English. Then she's talking with her mother in French. Then her mother passes the phone to her father and she starts speaking Catalan. And I remember thinking, it's not just, that's not just Peggy speaking three languages. Those are three Peggy's. Right. She's entering into a different state. Yeah. And it's like her brain is reconfiguring mm-hmm. every time she's, she changes languages. And then I thought, what are... If I'm right about that, that would be an interesting thing to research. So I started looking into multiple personality disorder and the research around that, and particularly studies that had uh, seemed to have demonstrated that 
people suffering from multiple personality dis- suffering from who, people who have multiple dis- uh, personality disorder um, they have exhibited and, and they've they've documented different baseline heart rate mm-hmm. different um, uh, ocular pressure so some personalities needed glasses to read and others didn't Right. So there are physiological sort of signature states associated with the different personalities. So I thought, man, if I could get people like her, a bunch of people like her who grew up speaking these different languages and hook them up to, you know, MRIs or or whatever, whatever I could get, blood pressure, heart rate, you know, whatever, and demonstrate that there are different signature states associated with when they're speaking different languages, that would fucking blow apart psychology that would be really right, you know right i never did it I, I ended up, <laughs> you didn't blow apart psychology thanks well not yeah i ended up doing the the uh the the sex stuff yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. um but that was one of the ideas really that, I, that i dug into enough to sort of see the, i think the reason i didn't really go for it was a i didn't really want to be an academic so right. you know i didn't want to tie myself into that too much um but b the the research on multiple personality disorders is pretty scarce. Yeah. There wasn't enough to really dig into it. Well, offer that up to anybody that's That's why I'm talking it. about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, any any psych grad students who are looking for ideas, I had four or five really good ones that I ended up abandoning. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a funny thing, too. Like, the ambition that you have that you want to pursue, that you're, like, really into it, and then you're like, no, I got to do this other thing. I got to do this other thing. So, like, um, I relate that also to having different personalities and uh figuring out which one you are by like you know what you end up doing you know it's really weird i mean i think if you look back probably if you think about yourself 10 years ago and like look at where you are now i mean my guess would be that you had no clue you know or you might have had some sort of feeling for it but like that you'd be here right now well the funny thing is uh casilda my wife called it Exactly. Mm -hmm. She, she saw, she was like, cause I remember I was working on, on the book. Right. And, and initially I had no agent, no contract, no publisher. I had absolutely no contacts in New York or publishing at all. And I was just like, I think this idea is interesting. I'm going to work on it, you know? And so I ran out of steam a lot of times before there was ever any reason to, you know, think that this would get published. But I remember at one point, like after, I think we did have an agent. And so there was some, you know, reason to think this might go somewhere. I was, I was just getting tired. And it's like, I'm always sitting at home writing. I'm not hanging out with friends. I, you know, my social life's, you know, dissipating into nothing. And I, and I remember her saying, just finish this book. You'll see, you'll see it. You'll, you'll yeah. have more interesting friends than ever. We're going to like go around the world. This is going to be this, you know, <laughs> da, da, da. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You're, you know, Thanks for the pat on the back, Mom. But, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Consider the source. But man, when it hit, she was just like, Yeah, of course it hit. Yeah, of course it's a bestseller. Of course they love it. It's like, what you That's, mean? Re- that's you know? really cool. I love yeah. when people can see that. I think, um, you know, for me, there's this like interesting thing when I look back on my life and I think about the many different lives I led. You know, like when I was a kid, I wanted to be like an actor, you know, in plays and stuff like that. And then as I, uh, 
you know, as I got older, you know, I went to school for religious studies for a little bit and I was really fascinated by religion. And then I started, you know, getting on the writing thing and I'd been writing since I was like seven years old, but like, you know, I started writing more and then I went to school for creative writing and then I went to grad school and I thought I was going to be a professor and I had that whole life where I was in academia. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to just, you know, be this professor who like speaks about literature and, and, and writes these novels and stuff like that. And I was going to school for science at the same time. Maybe I'll be a science writer. And then, you know, got out of grad school, you know, started doing porn and like started just examining sex and sex in people's lives more. And now like slowly fading out of porn, nothing totally done, but like and into this sort of like public intellectual life. And it's like everything sort of folds in and out of itself and weaves in and out, you know, like wanting to be an actor when I was a little kid and then, oh, well, I am a performer, you know, yeah. but like not the way that I thought I was going to be exactly. Right. And just, you know, the kind of stuff I thought I'd be writing. Oh, well, I'm writing a nonfiction book first, not the novels that I thought I was going to be writing. And I'm writing about science in that book, but not in the way that I thought I was going to be and just how everything sort of weaves in and out. But the, the kinds of lives I led the many different lives I led and the, the different hats that I wore, um, they, I, th I thought that that was going to be the world that I was in, but some, but, but sometimes you just sort of, or some people just let all those lives come together and sort of fold into one life. And then you have this weird new thing that you could have never really imagined, yeah. you know? Yeah. I love that when you, when you like, hear what someone does for a living and it's like i, I didn't know anyone did that right you know I, mean? I didn't know that existed <laughs> yeah until two seconds ago yeah yeah I, I love that i love to be surprised by by life and it's true i've in my own life you're right how things like there are uh what's the word there there motifs yeah or, or recurring yeah. patterns yeah. and and it, i was gonna say like an echo comes after the thing, but there must be a word for like an echo that comes before the event. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. a harbinger or a, a pre-echo. Right, like a foreshadowing. Yeah. Foreshadowing, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I was uh, I was obsessively interested in American Indians. Like, that's mm -hmm. all I read. I, yeah. I would come home from school, take off all my clothes, put on my loincloth. <laughs> and, and I'd be in a loincloth till I had to go to school so You're a racist morning. kid. <laughs> no, I wasn't racist. I was, I was a fucking teasing. Indian, I was dude. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a loincloth made out of a purple bath towel, but still. Yeah. I had a wigwam in the yard. I would, like, you know, cure my friend's rabbit skins that he'd give me after he went wow. shooting rabbits. Um, you know, I was... It wasn't that I was interested in Indians. It was that I felt I was an Indian. Yeah. And, the, and I don't mean to trivialize anyone, but the, the closest I can sort of relate to it is... Um, I was I was uh, speaking with a transgender person, and that sense of like, wait, I've got this body, but this isn't me. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt. It's like, oh, I'm this white Irish kid in 1972, but really, I'm an Iroquois in you know 1500 or something or earlier. Uh, and and I was resonating. I could feel the significance of things that weren't in this particular world. It, it's hard to explain. No, I ridiculous, no, I don't think it sounds ridiculous at all. I actually totally get it. I think most people will probably totally get that. Not and 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 I know that you don't mean. Um, well, this was the same thing as being trans and like being you know like I know you don't mean that because in in that way you just mean like. 
uh, I felt this this feeling, you know, and maybe there was some longing there, but I felt like um, I understood. I understood this thing better than I understood myself, you know, better than I understood the world that I was born into. Right, and, yeah. I, and feeling like this world I'm born into is not my world. Right. This isn't my world. I don't fit here. You know, and I can understand how people feel that with their bodies, you know. This is not my body. Okay, right. I get it. I know. I'm born in this body, but it, it isn't me, you know. And right. that's how I felt about it. And so, you know, now, like, I'm, I'm writing these books and all this and, you know, living overseas and all. And I can see, like, there's this big sort of circle. Like, okay, here I am writing about the superiority of free agricultural societies. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like I was born to do that, you know. Right. There is some sense of destiny. But um, I wonder, like, moving moving away from me and my craziness, uh, have yeah, you yeah. read, did you read this recent Michael Pollan thing in The New Yorker? No. Uh, very interesting about the neurobiology of plants. No, no. Yeah, it, apparently it's it's really worth reading. It's it's online free if people just Google Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N, and uh, neurobiology of plants or something like that. Um, he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. Right, you know right. Who he is, right? I've read that, yeah. He's a great writer. Um, but this article is all about uh, a school of, of um, plant biologists who see evidence of learning of intention of uh intentional behavior in plants and uh there's obviously no brain in a plant but there is evidence of these sorts of things we associate with brain Yeah. yeah even consciousness perhaps and uh, it's a fascinating article. It begins uh, with a discussion of a, a book that was published in 1973, I think, called The Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was the bestseller that uh, introduced the idea of uh, talking to your plants and playing music for plants and that they have this sort of um, consciousness on some level. And uh, so he sort of, then he goes through people who are doing work now that updates, in some cases disputes a lot of what was talked about in that book. But uh, but that there is, and, and in fact, if you find the article online, there's a video uh, that shows something he describes in the article, which is uh, there's a vine growing in a room, and there it, there's no wind. There's it's a it's a laboratory setting, and you can see the vine. They they speed up. The thing, because he, he what he basically says is like plants are just living in a much slower mm-hmm. dimension, so we don't see what they're doing, you know, because it moves much slower than we do. But uh, you see this vine growing up, and it goes up straight toward the light, and then you see it just like turn and go to the left, to the left, to the left, and then it reaches this pole and twines around the pole. Mm. It's like, well, how the fuck did it know, know that pole was, pole there? was there? Yeah. yeah. Really strange it's really stuff. really fascinating. And also in the root systems. I was talking to one of these biologists last night about it, and she was like, yeah, well, maybe the light, the shadow, you know, there's some sort of shadows or light casting or something. But even so, it knows that. Well, it's sensing. But we yeah. know plants can sense light, so maybe there's some. But even so, how does it, how does it process the data? You yeah. know, like, oh. The, exactly. And my point was there's no sun. So there's no movement. So there's no like changing trajectories that it could right. be doing. But even, as you say, even if it were, like, how the hell is it processed yeah. that data? You know. But um, uh, but then the the rejoinder to that is that the roots do the same thing. <laughs> the roots going through the dirt. There's no light, and there's no way it's using light in the dirt. But it can sense like you know there's a there's a source of water in that direction, or there's a, you know mineral uh, you know in that direction. They they spread toward what they need yeah which gets us back to evolution <laughs> right because 
I think one of the fundamental questions in evolutionary theory is do organisms evolve pure you know random mutation which is the standard darwinian thing like shit just happens and some works out and some doesn't and that's how it goes or is there some way that species evolve in directions that anticipate uh, greater adaptability yeah, somehow. A- absolutely, there is something, and we don't have to call that God, and right. we don't have to be religious. I mean, I do happen to be a spiritual person, but I don't think we have to be religious to accept that. We can just posit that completely a-religiously. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't. Ultimately, I don't think it's worthwhile to present it a-spiritually, but for the purposes of creating a bridge between materialistic people and this new sort of way of thinking, I think, yeah, we don't have to accept that it's random that an ichthyosaur and a fish are shaped the same way, even though they're completely different, um, completely different type of animals or that, um, bats and birds have related body structures, even though they're completely different kinds of animals. Um, it, it doesn't have to be random that when uh, an organism interacts with certain types of environmental pressures, like these things happen to arise. Like to me, that doesn't necessarily show me randomness. That shows me some sort of interactive. Uh, understanding between the process and laws of evolution itself and the environment within which the evolution is working in. And so I think that there... um Actually, Thomas Nagel just wrote a book that is kind of about this. You know him? He wrote that essay... I think it's like how to think like a bat or yeah or, or, yeah and and he was, the funny thing about Thomas Nagel is he only ever states the obvious but because the because our thinking in culture is so convoluted um, the obvious is really important when he states it and he does it very clearly so in how to think like a bat it was um, look you just don't know what a bat bat's inner experience is like right. so you can't you can't really know like and for us to think that we can know is stupid like it has a whole different series of complexes of inner working with the environment all that kind of stuff which i think is actually important when we start talking about plant consciousness because then what people do is like well plants have feelings plants have thoughts plants have this plants have that they're like us yeah it's like no it's just a completely different order of consciousness consciousness is there and we can relate to it but in a distant way um and we should have known that to start with you know we shouldn't have let go of thinking that plants had some sort of consciousness right. Descartes error. Yeah, and then and then <laughs> um and so then Thomas Nagel's new book, Mind and Cosmos, again, really obvious, but he's basically stating, no, there's something about evolution that does direct it towards certain forms. Oh really? And you don't and you don't know um and so he's positing some sort of mind there. Right. Um he's he really doesn't present any sort of solution he says i'm not able to because it's actually kind of refreshing at the end of the book he's like i'm not really able to posit what's happening because i'm not a radical enough thinker i just know what the problems are with the way people are saying yeah. <laughs> things and so um, well i you know i sorry to interrupt no, you, go but ahead. i i explicitly rebel against this idea that you if you're going to present a problem you have to have an answer to it right Fuck yes that. no they're, they're two unrelated things they're completely different yeah marx would have been brilliant if he had 
it stopped with diagnosing the problems of capitalism. <laughs> Just leave it there, totally. Carl. You, you'll be much better off in the long run. <laughs> yeah, we'll appreciate the no gulags. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I think... Um, I think that these things are all related that we're talking about. I want to talk about the plant consciousness a little bit um, in the sense that, you know, a plant, when I want to try to think like a plant, what I, what I don't want to do is think like a... Well, just like when I want to try to think like a chimpanzee, which is very close, right? Like it's aside from other human beings, you know, chimpanzees, bonobos, that kind of stuff. The closest thing we can find, as you well know, but still a totally different organism than us. Totally different. There are so many overlaps that we can notice, but being that creature and being me is very different. Just as we can tell, because being Christopher Ryan and being Connor Beebe is totally different experience. So then, when we even get down to most of the time, yes, but if if we're terrified, for example, right. then we're pro- it's probably you, me, and the chimps are all the same. If we're all like running from a lion, you're you know, right. Then, then, then we're all in the same boat, conscious wise. Fe- an aspect of our consciousness yeah. is similar, right? Yeah. Because um, well, we're not really conscious. We're just going. Ah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that part of the consciousness is the same, yeah. and then. And then there's all these things that might be different, like uh, if someone's running from the lion, fuck, I gotta, get a- I gotta get away from this. Then the lion, like, is getting closer, and they're like, goodbye to my wife and kids, like, goodbye forever, you know? Yeah. And then there's someone who's more... But do you think more- that happens? Or do you think you just go, ah, until you get dead? It depends on your disaster. Like, uh, you know the studies of disaster personalities, where it's like, yeah. different people... I've discovered that my disaster personality um, is that... Uh, ha- not boasting, but it's like the good kind to have in a disaster where I get very calm. Oh. Um, probably because I had like traumatic shit happen when I was a kid. So like when I'm in a situation and shit is going down, I'm I'm very directive, and I'm like, yeah. you do this, you do this, stop doing this, you know. And so my mind is has a clearer sort of. Pro- so I think yeah, some people with certain disaster personalities have different right. You'd reactions. Be a good uh, ambulance driver. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Casilda's yeah. that way. Oh, really? Yeah. When when she's in a medical emergency, yeah. she turns into Wonder Woman. Yeah. The rest of the time, she's sort of scattered and, and spontaneous and unstructured. Totally. Every yeah. day, I'm an anxious. I, I get tons of anxiety. But then when the shit goes down, it flips over. So there's something refreshing about tragedy. Do you, yeah. Do you, I mean, I don't mean to be perverse. Or, no. But like death, disaster. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day who was in thailand when the tsunami hit and he stayed there for two weeks yeah like wow you know pulling bodies out of rubble wow. and doing all this crazy shit and uh yeah we were talking about like how it's horrible there's no doubt that his experience was absolutely horrible and he wasn't trying to glamorize it all but there is something that we live in so much artificial bullshit that any kind of reality is refreshing in a way. And unfortunately, that reality tends to come in disasters. There's a great book called Paradise Built in Hell. Oh, yeah. The you know Rebecca book? Solnit book. Yeah. So great. Yeah, really. And it shows, like, you you know, similar to what you're saying. Like, people people don't. We have this idea, this Hobbesian vision of human nature <laughs> that people get, you know, 
will take advantage and they'll ransack and they'll steal right. and, and and so all the like freaks are out buying their guns waiting for the apocalypse. Right. But when the apocalypse comes, what happens? People help each other. Right. Except I love the part where she points out, except the people that don't help each other are the rich people that are afraid of losing their shit. Then they get their guns and they start shooting people and calling the police. So like yeah. the people who are rich and in power very often like are the ones that fuck things up in a disaster because they're terrified. Even of in their a, shit. even in a slow disaster, any homeless person will tell you that they get most of the money that whoever who the people who help them are poor people, right. not rich people. The people right. who give money to homeless are the people who can imagine being homeless. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Melancholia by Lars von Trier? No. Okay. No. I know so, Lars von Trier. I saw that uh, Against the Waves. That was a freaky movie. Against the Wasn't Waves. Wasn't that him? What, it might have been. I didn't see the it. The woman's, like the guy's dying and he asked her to go sleep with someone else. That sounds like Lars von Trier. Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> morose. Melancholia, go see this movie. I'm going to tell you the end, but it's not a spoiler. Um, it's just sort of, you know. Um, the So Melancholia is about... It, it's a movie in two parts, and the first Breaking part the waves. Sorry, Go ahead. is uh, Kristen Dunst, and she is just this depressed person. She's at a movie. I mean, she's at a wedding, and she's just it's it's her own wedding and she's just ruining it because she's depressed she's being an asshole she's getting drunk she's like sleeping with other people like at her own wedding wedding. and it's just it's just a total deterioration and she's rich like she's part of this rich fabulous family and then the second half of the movie is sort of the next day and the next day where she's staying with uh, she's staying with her family after her husband has left. And there's a star called Melancholia, or it's a planet called Melancholia that is coming closer and closer to Earth. And people are like, oh, it's just going to pass us by. But as it turns out, no, it's actually going to crash into the Earth and destroy really? the Earth. Oh, what a great concept. It's, it's great. But since she is a depressed person, she's been depressed her whole life, everybody else in the movie is freaking the fuck out about this planet. And she's like, this is what I deal with every day. Like, there's nowhere to run from depression. There's nowhere to hide. There's nothing to do. If this is going to be the end of everything, this is just what I experience every day. Right. And so it's such this intense um, interplay. And so I think what you're talking about when you um, bring up the tsunami and all that um, kind of stuff, it's like if you get to have a moment where you get to pull back from yourself, where you get to have some sort of distance and view yourself and think about who you are think about your thinking think about the world think about all that and be like this is what has to be done this is how i'm going to interact with the situation because i'm beyond like all my dumb worries mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff right. is that sense of detachment that happens in those situations that i think is so powerful and moving. right but it's detachment from a false sense of self it, exactly. so it's actually attachment in a sense or at least, <laughs> right. it's, at least it's immersion closeness. it's immersion in a different state in, yeah in reality yeah 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 yeah, it's. I mean, uh, the way I I feel, I'm I'm getting this sense. There's that great Pink Floyd song, "Comfortably Numb." Yeah, you know, I <laughs> sure. have become comfortably numb. It's such a great thing because comfort is defined by uh, the absence of sort of unwelcome sensory input. Mm-hmm. I guess that might be a way to define comfort, right? So. It means, you know, instead of sitting on a hard bench, you're sitting on a comfy sofa where your body, <laughs> right. there's no like pushing against your body. And oh, yeah. The temperature is more, you know, cool, but not too cold and not mm. too warm. And, and there's no wind and there are no like weird smells. Sensory and, deprivation. It is. It's numbness. Yeah. It's the lack. It's, and so we. Boundarylessness. And civilization, like we have built 
ourselves these comfortable, temperature-controlled, right. you know, safe, uh, you know, bulletproof glass bars over the windows. Like we, do, the whole thing is about stopping input, and then what happens? Life becomes meaningless. We're depressed, and it's like ah, uh, there's no, there's nothing happening. Right. Well, of course, there's nothing <laughs> happening. Your entire existence is built upon stopping things from happening. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the and the 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 point is to develop that. Um, the point is to develop that sense within ourselves, regardless of the exterior and external um, situation. Which, it's like, which point within ourselves? Um, the the boundarylessness of it, mm. to, to be able to decide on a world that's not just based on our senses. That's based on, instead of trying yeah. to arrange all the pieces outside of ourselves to make this like floating on a cloud, I have no body, I have nothing, I'm nobody. Yeah. Doing that in, in our inner world so that no matter what happens, we have access to that space when we want it. I agree, but I, I also think that there... And this this sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier about it's all bullshit, so I might as well choose the bullshit that works best for me Yeah. Uh, in terms of religion. And also, I, I think I might have made a party faux pas last night because another example I used, I had a few glasses of wine, a few bottles of wine probably. Uh, I said... I said, you know, another example is, you know, these are all married couples there except me and and the daughter. And I was like, uh, you know, like this bullshit about soulmates. Like we all pretend like, oh, I found my soulmate. Oh, yeah. You know, we all know that's bullshit. We all know there are are hundreds of people that you could have been just as happy with, if not happier. But we choose to like share this illusion that we found the only one. Yeah, right. Wrong wrong move, everybody. Christopher Ryan has no soul. I got a soulmate, though. But, but I swear, at that moment, the, the couple sort of looked at each other, and then uh, they said, well, we, I guess we should be getting home now. Oh, no. I was like, oh, fuck, bad example. Time to go back to our lie, Christopher. <laughs> um, what the fuck? I was about to jump we're, in. We're, oh, we're oh about, sorry. Yeah. What I was going to say is, similarly, so we, we get to this point where we've, we've made everything. I think we can get to a point, and I'm not there yet. Where we say, okay, I've got everything under control, but you know what? I'm going to take cold showers anyway. Right. Yeah, totally. I'm get- Well, and this is what people do. They go camping. Why yeah. do they go camping? You know, not because it's so comfortable, right. right? They go for the unexpectedness. Like maybe it's going to rain. Maybe yeah. it's going to be cold. Maybe, well, I got a sleeping bag. I got this, but I'm still out there, right. you know, less protected. So anyway, sorry. Interrupt. No, no, no. That's not, that's not an interruption. All right, Connor's back from the bathroom. We took a break. Sorry, taking, taking a little break, <laughs> drinking some smart water. Now, do smart people buy smart water? No, I mean, only dumb people because you need it to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. The whole, bottled water itself is a bit of a mind fuck, and then you get no. like, oh no, but this is Himalayan, you know, blah 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 blah. I think buying, I think buying spring water is fine if you live in a place like L.A. where um, the water has Prozac in it and shit like that. Right. Know. Well, but, but the I don't think is, I don't think smart water is spring water though. And a lot, a lot of spring yeah. water is not spring water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and a lot of it's just filtered reverse osmosis bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And then all we're really doing is buying plastic bottles, right. which are then BPAs. going into the ocean yeah, and, and, and you know absorbing the plastic. Yeah. So know. speaking so, of technology, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so you and I have, uh, I don't know if I, if I said this to you, but yeah, I, Cassie and I were listening to Duncan, uh, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour while we were driving through the Canadian Rockies a uh-huh. couple months ago. And uh, I, I love his podcast. Everybody yeah. knows. I always talk about how, how hilarious it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were the guest on there, and you guys were... <laughs> Duncan was going off on, you know, the future, how wonderful the future is going to be. And we're going to like all have virtual this and virtual that. And you were so gently, I, I mean, I was just every I, ounce. I, I mean, you were, you were like some sort of Zen master, just like gently like, yes, Duncan, but isn't it possible? <laughs> Isn't there just the slightest possibility? And he's, no, you don't understand. It's going to be amazing. We're going to live forever. We're going to merge with the fucking internet. And And I was in the car just going, Duncan, you're full of shit, man. I love you, but you're so full of shit. (laughs) So anyway. That's uh, how I felt when I listened to you. I remember you talking about the same things. And I was like, right on, right on, Ryan, right on. And then like, and yeah, I remember you talking to him about similar things. And you were just like, I I don't know if I trust it. I don't know if yeah. I trust this shit. What the other day when I was on with him and Rogan? No, one? I haven't heard that oh, one. No, it was yeah. a, it was a little older. Yeah. Well, I did a thing. I think it was last week or the week before. Uh, Duncan, me, and Rogan on his podcast. Oh wow! Right. And it was really fun. Yeah. I like the three the three way dynamic. Yeah, you yeah. Because yeah. you can sort of zone out and it doesn't matter if the other two <laughs> will just keep rolling. It's just like a threesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You can go roll a joint, go to the bathroom. Nobody even notices you're not there. Uh, but. Um, yeah, and, and I always feel like the turd in the punch bowl with those two guys because they're both so like <laughs> so the future's going to be great and the it's, singularity is here, it's man. It's a new moment, and yeah, and I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not that much of a curmudgeon. I hope shit works out, but I just don't see it headed that way. Yeah, it's you know what? It's like it's just not. Um, not only do I not think it's going to work out that way because there are power structures and there, are, I just I'm kind of not. I'm not interested. Like, I, I, I'm happy for that shit to come along, right? Like, I'm excited about a 3D printer, you know, and I'm excited about. Are you? I'll, f- Why? Fine. Well, it, it makes little plastic things. Who gives a fuck? Well, right. Like, like they made need more they made like things. the leg for the duck that was missing a leg, and then the duck oh, could eat walk the or whatever. Fucking duck. Yeah. <laughs> but, you find a duck with a broken leg, kill, kill it, it, and eat it. Kill it. But well, so what I'm saying is fine. Like all that stuff is fun to me it's fun but i don't i don't get into it as a way to like somehow change humanity and change society and all that kind of shit like definitely the internet has changed things it has like interacted with our consciousness and the way blah blah blah. but first of all i don't know if that's a symptom of our change in consciousness or if it's the thing that changed our consciousness i don't like assigning it like a causal role like Mm -hmm. oh the internet changed everything well maybe we demanded that the internet exist because we were changing inwardly like i don't know that we have to necessarily give all the credit to the internet the second thing is that like it's not um it's it's not that predictive like you can't just be like great like um so when airplanes first came out people were throwing throwing parties because they said that airplanes were going to end war because there would be no more nations and so it was like obviously it's the exact opposite happened right. you know every time we invent something yeah. we use it to fuck somebody over. <laughs> yeah totally even <laughs> even if it has a good role but we can't ignore that like something terrible is going to come out of it too it's 
just ridiculous. Right, and it, and it makes perfect sense that when you've got concentrations of power, technology tends to further concentrate the power because it's controlled by the people who have the power. I right. mean, that's just the way it always has worked and always will be. And I don't think that's going to change because we can all tweet our disgust at, you know, whatever. I mean, right. Twitter revolutions, I just, it's bullshit. You know, like what, what happened? Oh, oh, in Iran, every Twitter, yeah, okay, who's in charge in Iran? You yeah. Know, meet the new boss, same as the fucking old boss, over and over. And nonsense is bullshit. The way that it's been good is like all the people who, you know, I'm in porn and like having tw- and, and doing Twitter give me this like huge platform. And so, like, uh, to talk to people. And yeah. so, like, all these people who are just watching gay porn found out about Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy. Right, right. It's that me emails. So, there are are ways in which it works definitely and positive aspect and it doesn't yeah. cause me the technology doesn't cause me to want to be a luddite or to be a neo-primitivist or whatever i don't know where you stand with that and you're writing about it but what but it doesn't give me any more hope than if it didn't exist it's well, just like this just is business as usual luddite on my samsung galaxy s4 <laughs> and see what that means okay. and I'll, get, I'll get right back to you yeah um <laughs> i'm a hypocritical luddite yeah, yeah. no we all we is all it luddite are. or luddite I, I i don't know it's two d's so i could we can luddite. look that up yeah. yeah it's harry or somebody ludd was the guy's name uh, who so went maybe it's Broke the machines. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, whatever. So so neo-primitivist. But anyway, the point is it doesn't give me any more hope than if it didn't exist. It's like we're still going to encounter similar problems. Like the, the point is to do... The going to fucking rise. Yeah. And, and to me, the, the problem is... I just saw this film, Her. Have you seen that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Did you like enjoy it? Uh, no, I hated that movie. But we'll, you but hated we could... Interesting. <laughs> well, so did I. You did. Yes. And I think we're the only two people on Earth. <laughs> no, no. I met some other people that hate it. A lot of people who aren't white hate that movie. And that it was yeah. my so it surprised me. It's not a surprise to me that you wouldn't I'm not like white. it. Yeah, I'm Irish. okay. <laughs> Right, I'm half Irish, but I, but for me it was like, oh, white people problems of the future. Like, <laughs> are, am I am I authentic? Are my feelings real? Do I really care about other human beings? I don't give a fuck about any of that. Like yeah. to me, it's the most phony, boring white conflict. People problems of the future. That's that sums it up. That's basically that movie. Yeah, I mean, I saw it. I still had some jet lag. Yeah, okay, and I saw it uh, with Duncan actually uh-huh. uh, and Natasha Leggero, uh-huh. uh, another <laughs> comedian. Funny. Yeah, um, and, uh, and and some other people. We had had a few drinks before, had dinner, went 10 p.m. show. I've yeah. got I've got jet lag, so the last thing I want to see is a movie of a guy lying around in bed talking to his phone, <laughs> right? And that's pretty much what happens in that movie. And I love her voice, though I will say, like I love her tits. I man. love everything it, about her, everything about Scarlett Johansson. I'm down with. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Super hot. Yeah, but like. Yeah. Let, let's see her. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, let's... Uh, but anyway, the... Um, I can't perform that for you in this movie, Christopher. Yeah. Okay, a couple weird things about that movie. First of all, <laughs> I like the ideas, but yeah. it didn't need to be a movie. It should have been a short story. An it would have been It should have great... been an app. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Second thing, like... Things should happen in movies. That's why it's a movie, right? Otherwise, write write a book. It's an yeah. article. It's whatever. You know, like I, I feel like things should need to be expressed in the medium in which they're expressed. That's the best use of the medium. Yeah. You know, otherwise, like it, you know, when people say the book's better, well, okay, that's because this is a book. You right. know, whereas right. anyway, so I felt like <sighs> nothing happened. It was boring. The ideas were interesting, but. Uh, could have been a 15-page short story. And 
the spoiler alert, spoiler alert ending mm. uh, where the he essentially gets dumped by the app who's going off with Alan Watts and a bunch yeah. of other apps. <laughs> yeah. What a cheap shot to bring Alan Watts into it, too. What yeah, a joke. Yeah. I know. Uh, like that. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that we're going to write apps in the future that don't do what we want them to do? Yeah. Well, that no, that's not what apps do. <laughs> apps are designed to serve you. Right, right. So the idea that your lover app is going to get sick of you and move on, even though she can be, you know, app fucking uh, millions of different people <laughs> at the same time, uh-huh. made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think... You know, for me, there were nice moments in that movie. There's a scene where there's they're having sex with each other, where they're just sort of talking. And so the screen is totally black and you just hear people moaning. And for me, like, I thought that was kind of an it was kind of an interesting moment. There were some visual things that were interesting. But to me, the idea of is my life fake or is it real? Um, to me, it's not. It culturally is not an interesting concept to me at all anymore. I feel like there are people... I feel like F is for Fake by Orson Welles is a much better version mm. of like that conflict and that kind of thinking. Because it's... Is culture fake or is it real? Is uh, my privilege fake or is it real? Is art fake or is it real? Those are interesting questions. When you get down to this level of like, are my feelings real? It's so myopic and boring to me. Yeah. And I kept thinking, you know, if there were just one moment where Joaquin Phoenix walked by someone who was begging for money, I might have felt a little bit better about it but it was like such a totalizing context like we're all going through this right now man this is the moment it's like no most people aren't going through this like show at least something outside of this world and i'll be able to accept that this is an aspect of the world that maybe we can talk about from time to time but right now it's like i feel like the rest of the world doesn't even exist to the person who made this movie which brings me to pubic lice okay <laughs> you may think oh, there's thanks. no connection, right. but there is. There was a there were I don't know if you know. Is it going this. extinct? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you read that. Yeah. There's this spate of articles that came out, you know, in, in the Economist and the Guardian and you know major major <laughs> media. Everyone's freaking out because some scientist somewhere said the pubic louse is going extinct because people are removing their pubic hair and right. it can only live in pubic hair, and so the the environment in which this thing exists. Da, 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 and everybody just bought this and wrote about it because it's titillating and whatever. How many people, what percentage of the people on the planet Earth are shaving their fucking pubes? <laughs> right, Talk right. about a first world yeah, problem. Yeah, 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 right. Right? Like, you really think, like, Africa, India, <laughs> yeah. Mongolia, you know, the Brazil. Well, yeah, well, Brazil, Brazil. But I mean, the jungle <laughs> in Brazil. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Not the beach Brazil. The jungle Brazil. Yeah. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, you, you, your friends, and, you know, your, your right. grad students at wherever the fuck you're teaching are all shaving your pubes, and yeah. you think the pubic louse is going? extinct you fucking idiot wake up look at the world yeah yeah, yeah the world totally. is not you and your fucking students yeah i know <sighs> kills me shit kills me. <laughs> yeah so if you want to live in a world that's like um her just move to san francisco right now yeah. it's the time to do it it's yeah. the time of tech companies with like twirly mustaches and like <laughs> crappy and like yeah like crappy like baby dolls like sticking in your hair and like shops full of nothing and all that kind of stuff it's just like that right now. And I, f- I feel like that's, you know, not surprisingly, like where that kind of aesthetic is coming from. 
Um, like yeah. uh, Spike Jones has worked with. Well, I don't. I'm not going to get mean about Spike Jones. I like he's, Spike Jones. He's, he's made some other John stuff Malkovich that I was, inter- was that I was interested in. Adaptation yeah, exactly. was great. And he and he, uh, you know, give him credit. He likes. He likes complex, interesting ideas, right. and and you know I'm not going to give anyone shit for that. We need more of that, right? But uh, yeah, I think I, I, I wish he would use movies to make movies in the future as opposed to meditations. Yeah, I think actually it would have been an interesting app. You know what I mean? Like that's why everybody's interested. You hear that thing about the the telemarketer who is like really a robot, and that like the guy recorded his conversation with it, where he's like. He's like, oh, it you, took sa- him a while you sound like a robot. Out. Yeah. yeah. And she's yeah. like, she's like, what? I know I'm a person. I think we have a bad connection. <laughs> and then finally, I think he said something like, what's the main ingredient in tomato soup? And she's like, I think we have a bad connection. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is fun. You yeah. know, like yeah. you could make an app that was like, would sometimes call a real person and sometimes would call a robot and you'd have to like, that's that it's fucked up, but it's interesting to me. Yeah. But as a movie, you're right. Like as a narrative, not that compelling, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well. And further bad news, Ray Kurzweil is going to die at some point. I know. I'm sorry. I hope it's going to be such, it's going to be so devastating. It's going to be like one of those cult leaders, you know, we'll all live forever. And then, oops. Oh, you know, (laughs) know. yeah. He's going to have to come to terms with his own mortality sooner or later. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have to tell you a story real quick about Lynn talking to someone from Wired magazine. This is a great story. So Lynn Margulis was on the phone with someone from Wired magazine a long time ago when uh, they were trying to interview her about uh, bacterial it was a, it was the editor-in-chief of wired china Chris anderson i don't know if it was the same person uh, has it been the same person all along no but he sort of founded it and ran it for a long okay, time probably him probably him then yeah. so he he was calling her and asking her about bacterial intelligence and somehow it moved into artificial intelligence and his wife was pregnant at the time and he's sort of browbeating lynn to like give him you know did like, you say brown beating bra- bra- <laughs> browbeating <laughs> lynn to give him to give <laughs> he's fucking Len in the butt. Yeah, so he's <laughs> Brown t- uh, so he's 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 trying to get her to like talk about artificial intelligence and you know she's just not she's yeah. irritated by the whole thing. And he's like, "Well, you know, bacteria um they you know, they basically must think like we think, like computers think, which is in ones and zeros." And Len's like, "Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I don't get it. I don't want to be led there." And so finally, she was just like, "I just got to get off this call." So she says, she said, well, listen, congratulations. Your wife is about to give birth to a computer. And she like hung up the phone. (laughs) And so I think it's like, we need to come to terms with that kind of stuff. Like if we really think there's no difference, then just go fuck a computer. Like go have a baby computer. Like go have, you know, like, well, get a flashlight. Yeah. (laughs) Right. The flashlight that talks to you. You know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody lives their lives as if those, as if the things that were interacting, except maybe Ray Kurzweil, as if like the computers we're acting with are our pals. It's just not it's just not so. I mean, we might have Japanese a friendly disposition. Do. Remember those those weird things? The Tamagotchis. Yeah. Yes. What the fuck is that? I think you have like a, a kindly regard for certain things. I sit in my car and I say thanks to my car, but I don't really like I don't really have the same kind of relationship with it that I have as, uh, with another human being. And so like the equation of the two is just not there. You might have some relationship. I have a relationship with all my things, you know? Yeah, I mean if you live in a house for a long time. I remember when I yeah, I, I sort of lived in this house till I was 13. Yeah. And then I moved to Connecticut. This was in Beaver Falls. And then a few years later, I went back uh, and I saw the house. And you felt? I felt, I felt betrayed that, that <laughs> yeah, totally. other people were living in it and it seemed just as happy 
as it had been when I was living in it. <laughs> right, you right. Know? And I, I was like, fuck you, Yeah, Oz. I've had that feeling, too. That's for weird. Sure. I thought we had a special thing, I mean, yeah. and you're still there doing I thought you liked having thing. me inside of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you'll just let anyone you in. You said I was special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there is something about the animacy, the consciousness of objects, but it's yeah. not the same as the consciousness of artificial intelligence. Like... Um, I'm more apt to think that the computer monitor itself and the materials that make it up have a consciousness than the program, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help feeling that, that all this stuff about, you know, and with all due respect to the optimists, the techno-optimists and all that, I, I, especially those who have kids who I think there is a, an emotional need to be optimistic, and I <laughs> certainly don't want to piss on that or, or downplay it because... Uh, that's a beautiful thing that I'm not engaging in, and so, you know, re- all respect. But I, I kind of feel like some of this is, uh, you know, it, I, I feel like this techno-utopia stuff is advertising. Mm-hmm. It's just the same bullshit. Like, it's consumer. Buy this pill, you know, get this product, believe in this bullshit, and you'll, you know, it'll be wonderful. You'll live forever. I mean, it's like, okay, so here we live in the time of the demise of religion and suddenly technology selling us the same bullshit. Right. And we're supposed to just say, oh, religion's bullshit, but eternal life through my right. Oculus Rift, right. is that's where it's at. Well, I don't believe in fairy tales, but I do believe... I don't know why I'm doing the Southern voice. <laughs> I don't believe in fairy tales, but I do believe that if I put certain numbers into this box, then a magic genie will come out and do whatever I want. And all my problems will be solved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's totally like... There is totally this mystical aspect to all of it that's, to- that's ignored, and it is bullshit. It is it is bullshit that we can't see it as having um, having its own problems, having its own pitfalls, like not saving us. It's not the new again. There's this messiah thing. There's yeah. this messianic thing. Like it's going to come save us. And I do think it creates interesting issues and interesting problems. And I am interested in transcending our old idea of nature. But I don't. Certainly. But I don't think that. I don't think that it's. Uh, I don't think it's going to save us. The only thing that's going to save us is us. You know. Well, well and I th- and, and here's here's where I really have a problem with it. Okay, I don't think it's just a distraction, and and mm. I think it provides cover for the continued destruction of our planet. Right, and that's. That is it. That is the problem. And people say, oh, we're going to go live on another planet. I don't want to live on another planet. <laughs> right. Right. I, uh, you know, and this is what this book I'm supposed to be working on now. Uh, the whole point of the book is like, if you're going in the wrong direction, progress is the last thing you need. Right. Yeah, right. That's, you know? that's a great, that's, uh, yeah, you need to, you need to tweet that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's in my notes. That'll be in the book. But, it might even be the first line of the book. I, I think, I think that there is, um, there's a difference between your thinking and my thinking that I, we probably don't have time to explore today, but I'm not concerned with the destruction of the planet. Um, I, uh, but for a whole host of other reasons that don't have anything to do with technology. I mean, I think that, uh, Destruction of the planet has certain uh, 
conceptual issues with it that 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 I'm not uh, that concerned about. That I just don't think in those kinds of concepts anymore. I don't think in uh, sustainable concepts or neo-primitivist concepts or any of those kind of. The nature to me means something totally different. Um, and not not I'm not assuming anything about you, but I do think that there's some sort of difference there because you express a concern for the destruction of the planet or destruction of humanity, as some people say. I don't. I feel like we're going to be fine. I feel like the planet's going to be fine. I feel like they're both going to be different. Um, but I, I think that there's, uh, I think that the idea that the planet is being destroyed and that technology is going to save it is that's nonsense to me. I don't, no, I don't technology is being used to destroy it yeah. ever faster. Well, we should explore that. I've, I've got to run because yeah. I, I do have someone waiting for me, but, uh, that's, that would be a good thing to explore in our next, uh, session. Uh, because, yeah, I I mean I I describe myself as a tragic optimist, uh-huh. <laughs> which means I think we're fucked, but I think it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> doesn't that just mean nihilist? <laughs> no, no, doesn't it? Isn't a well? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think. And there may be some convergence. I'm not sure where you're coming from, but there may be some convergence in the sense that there, there's a book called. Um, uh, what the hell was it called? It's after humans. Or the world something? without the us. The world without us. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that book. Yeah. In the, in the same way, in the same way, I feel cleansed by tragedy. Mm-hmm. That, like, I think human beings are a plague upon the planet, <laughs> and I would love to see the planet with no people on it. Yeah. You know. But that's but that's Slava Zizek wrote uh, this little line about that book, which I love because I have read that book and it was fun. But he says, you know, this is just like when you're a girl in, uh, you know, seventh grade. I don't know. He says girl, but it's like when you're in seventh grade and you imagine killing yourself so you can see who shows up at your funeral. Like it's actually impossible. By the moment you're dead, like you don't get to see it. So in other words, there is no world without us, and it's a fa- oh, it's a God. fantasy. And so that's that guy's a bullshit artist. No, like, no, no. I love him. His conclusions are total bullshit, but I think his critiques, again, like his Marxist conclusions are dumb, but his critiques are exciting to me. But I will say, and this might go back to the refrigerator and maybe that's where we have to pick it up again, but I don't think that anything exists outside of human consciousness. And I don't. And I, or without it, I should say, it's this uh, uh, Angela Celestius thing that God cannot even make a worm move without me completing that motion for him. And so I think that, um, uh, and if you think that anything exists outside of human consciousness, well, where's that thought coming from? So I, I think that when it comes down to the world without us, that's our thought, that's our concept, that's something that exists within our consciousness. So we have to take, um, so I, I feel like everything's going to be okay because if everything isn't okay, then we're not even going to know it. So, um, (laughs) such a self-centered view. Totally. It's totally self-centered, but to make it nicer, um, is the concept of this occultist who says, uh, it's all in your head. You just have no idea how big your head is, which means that, um, Everything's contained within me, but that also means that I'm part of everything as well, that we're all interacting in some sort of uh, uh, huge solipsistic space. It's not a small one. It's huge. And we're all interrelating. And so I, I don't know. I think it's more generous than it. I think it's more generous than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, that's what they all say. That's what the Koch brothers say. 
you know, and these crazy Christians who are like, well, I don't care about global warming because Jesus is coming and then where I'm going to go to heaven. Like, yeah, no, that, no, that's, no, you. No. that's you. This is no, this is you. So basically we're ending this podcast with everything's going to cease to exist, but it doesn't matter uh-huh. versus none of it ever existed anyway. So who cares? I didn't say everything was going to cease to exist. Well, I said human- we are human- Humanity will cease to exist or crumble, yeah. but it doesn't matter. The or will continue and the other animals. Yeah. And I'm just saying none of that ever will. existed anyway. So, hmm. so, so, uh, the, the, wow. it's dead or it never lives at the end. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed having your mind fucked from the front and the back. And, uh, the, the, wow. I like that you're the front. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, good. Yeah. Unless you want the back. As long as I'm the top. Okay. <laughs> the upper front. Uh, anyway, hey, really, always fun talking with awesome. you. Awesome. Yeah, really so fun. nice to even see you again. Yeah. It's well, great. Next time, let's let's make more time for it. Right on. obviously, we've got a lot of shit to, to hash out. <laughs> we got, yeah, we got a lot of problems to solve. <laughs> the universe. All right, thanks. Hey, where, where are people? Where oh, are yeah. You? Connor uh, Habib, yeah, C-O-N-N-E-R. C-O-N-N-E-R, H-A-B-I-B.com, which um, is under construction, but reroutes to my blog um my book which is now titled and i think i'm gonna stick with this one um how to learn about freedom by having sex will be out from disinformation in the fall i like fuck your way to freedom F- fuck your way to freedom i know i want to i was thinking about having i think i was just going to call it fuck freedom but i can't mm. um I, it, like having fuck in the title does all sorts of marketing things that yeah, is like even cool. having sex in the title does not yeah so um yeah i would love to call it how to learn about freedom by fucking or something like that or whatever but uh screwing outside the box <laughs> <laughs> anyway. i am gay so there's no box involved so <laughs> so the so the um so that book will be out that book will be out in the the fall and i'm gonna i'm gonna start my own podcast this year that's my rule so you're gonna be on it all All right right. uh sign me up all right right on all right cool thanks thanks for he said baby what's the big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Try to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Send it for a Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say What's the big deal if 
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground. 